0: Andreas is going to tell us about computation, computational seismology, something that interests a lot of us. So thanks a lot, Andreas. Good. Yeah. Um, <laughs> also, thank you very much for the for the invitation and for, for giving me the opportunity to uh, to talk about some of the work that we do in the, uh, the seismology group at, uh, at ETH. Uh, we'll mostly talk about the, uh, the the most computationally intensive part of part of the work that uh, that we are doing. Now, most of you are certainly not, not seismologists, so that's why my, my talk will be on a relatively basic level. So it, it will, I will talk about concepts and not about really uh, hard uh, hardcore work. Um, but still, uh, I want to let you know that uh, if you want to know more of the details, then uh, please have a look at the posters that we brought. There should be about six of them uh, visible during the copy break or the poster break. And, uh, and I will make, make reference to that the another. So, um, computational seismology. I want to, talk with the, want to start with the movie that you have now already seen a couple of times. It shows an American simulation of an aftershock of the great Tohoku earthquake of uh, 2011. The main shock had a magnitude of 9 point something. That, that small aftershock only had a magnitude of of 6.9, and that means within literally a couple of seconds it released about 2 petajoule of energy. Nobody has any feeling of what 2 petajoule are. It's, it's roughly the energy consumption of Switzerland in a whole year. So counting everything from a light bulb to, to industrial installation. So, uh, so that earthquake was, was large enough to be recorded globally. For example, on a station in the uh, Black post Observatory, that's not, that's not very far from here. That was at a, at a distance of, uh, of 83 degrees, so that's, that's roughly uh, 10,000 kilometers. The data that we typically work with in seismology, especially in regional to global seismology, roughly look like this. So this is an, a recording of the earthquake at, at that station. So these are seismograms in vertical east-west and north-south Direction. You see that there are some, some small wiggles, these are so called body waves that really travel through the interior of the Earth, through the body of the Earth, and the waves with the large amplitudes, the surface waves that propagate predominantly along the surface of the Earth. Now, the complex wave packets that you see over there, they're basically under the influence of two main factors. The first one, are the sources of the wave field that excite the wave field in the first place. These could be earthquakes, explosions, landslides, meteorites, impacts, whatever. Uh, But also the three-dimensional structure of the Earth, which in turn is influenced by, for example, thermal and compositional anomalies. So all of those complex wave packets that arrive at different times, the body wave and the surface waves, they illuminate very different parts of the earth and in doing so they really contain a staggering wealth of information about the structure of our planet but also about the sources of those wave fields. So one of our, of our main goals in the group is to, to develop technologies that actually exploit as much of that available information in order to constrain the structure of the earth and the wave field sources as accurately as possible and those methods, very broadly speaking, are often referred to as full waveform theory. The, the main innovation here is really to, to make a transition to uh, towards numerical solutions of the seismic wave equation. This is where our computing part comes in. It's plainly computing three-dimensional wave fields through complex Earth models that are attenuating, anisotropic, and so on and so forth, accounting for the 3D, 3D complex media. And then to transition using those numerical simulations from traditional travel time tomography to full waveform version that uses complete recordings in order to improve resolution of sources and subsurface structure. So what you see, see here is really, really a cartoon-like description of what that is supposed to mean. It's not, it's not very well visible. So in the cyclic recording, you would have all those little wiggles at high frequencies. Traditionally, one would pick those travel times and invert those travel times for a three-dimensional model of the Earth. And what we would ideally like to do is not to even pick those travel times, but to use the complete, complete wave fields, in principle, every single wiggle. Now, that's a, that's a dream. Right? So we're very far from being able to actually exploit such high frequency waveforms. So what we have made over the past 10 years are really the, the first couple of baby steps in that direction. And, uh, and I want to show you, basically, where we are standing today. Just an example of, uh, of what that full wave moment means in practice. This example is from the, the Western Mediterranean. The data that we used in that study are 52 earthquakes. These are all the beach balls that you see plotted here. And they have been recorded by more than 1,000 species. They are all the black triangles, especially on the Iderian peninsula, part of Northern Africa, Italy, you see here in the Alpine region, Switzerland. From those data, uh, oh, on those data, we perform full waveform inversion, meaning that we uh, use numerical simulations of those data. And more specifically, we use spectral element simulations, and I will come to that a little bit later. And then we tried to minimize the discrepancy between the simulated wave field and the wave fields that we have actually observed at those more than one thousand stations. This provides us with a three-dimensional model of the Earth, various parameters of the Earth, uh, for example the propagation velocity of horizontally and vertically polarized shear waves, the propagation velocity of P waves, density, attenuation, and so on and so forth. What you see here are variations in the isotropic shear wave speed. So the blue is is faster than average. Red is is slower than average. Don't want to go into details just to give you a very rough flavor of what one might get out of this. For example, this very high velocity region that we see here Is typically interpreted in terms of low temperatures that correspond to the uh, lithosphere of the African continent that is subducted beneath Europe. The consequence of this subduction is actually the formation of this much shallower low velocity anomaly that you see here. Those low velocities are typically interpreted in terms of high temperatures. So, since this has high temperatures, this stuff is buoyant, it's uh, it's moving upwards. The upward movement of this low-velocity anomaly then leads, for example, to the uplift of the Iberian Massif. So this structure here is responsible, loosely speaking, for the high elevation of of the Iberian Peninsula. You also see this when you look at a different aspect of this model. This is now a horizontal cross-section, and we're only looking at 5 kilometer depth. And the color scale is uh, absolute shear velocities from about 2.5 to 4 kilometers per second. And then you see very clearly the adhering massif. These are high velocities, Mm -hmm. (coughs) this lower crust material has been uplifted and is now a shallow depth. So the bottom line here is that uh, that actually comes with a couple of advantages showing us that this full waveform inversion is not only an exercise in computational seismology, but actually teaches us something. First of all, we see increased resolution, which is uh, Something that, uh, that we ultimately want. Um, also, absence of numerical artifacts that come from potentially inaccurate simulations of the forward wave field or from inversion schemes that, for example, use inaccurate derivative information. But from a geologic or tectonic perspective, it is also the joint resolution of crustal like mantle structure. So instead of fixing crustal structure or the shallow layer of structure and inverting for the mantle below, it's all inverted at the same time. And as a consequence, the assumption of a potentially inaccurate crustal structure does not pollute our, our mental heterogeneities. Good. Here, um, my first reference to posters. This was very, very much cartoon-like. If you want to know more details, please have a look at the posters by Neda Masominia and uh, Maria Coroni. Neda is working on a full wave form for the Zarcos region. And, uh, and Maria has developed a method that allows us to not only constrain volumetric heterogeneities that you, see, that you see here, but to constrain perturbations of internal discontinuities that we have inside the Earth. Good. So uh, this, this seismic waveform modeling and, and inversion, of course, has relevance that goes beyond dynamics and evolution and composition of the Earth. If you look at uh, not the scale of the Earth, but at scales of about a million kilometers, you can use basically the same methods in order to study the internal structure of the sun. It's very, very translatable. If you look at smaller scales, this becomes interesting for earthquake source inversion. I will show examples. Those in turn feed into reliable tsunami warnings or the monitoring of the uh, comprehensive nuclear test bench. And even smaller scales, seismic methods, seismic full waveform inversion, is used for exploration and reservoir monitoring, for engineering applications, and uh, also for technology transfer from seismic imaging to medical ultrasound And of course there are many more. So in total this, this stands roughly 11 orders of magnitude, which is quite nice because when you develop a method that works on a specific scale, you can bring it into applications that are in principle very far away from what you're doing, but the math and the physics are still very much similar. Now, this uh, waveform modeling and inversion is also, I would say, the, the backbone of our group. We're working on many other things, but, but this is the route from which many things developed. For example, on, uh, we work on earthquake physics, seismic interferometry, numerical wave propagation, large <coughs> scale data analysis, inverse theory, and we're also looking at new kinds of data that go beyond those seismometer recordings that you have seen before. Now, of course, there's no point in the 45 minutes that I have to talk about all of this. Instead, I picked out just a few. Uh, the first one, earthquake physics, earthquake source inversion. You will see a few slides on seismic interferometry and numerical wave propagation. And, uh, and finally, I want to give you a little bit of an outlook on, on our future developments, and more specifically on the development of what we call the collaborative seismic growth. Good. So uh, let's start with the, with the first real topic, which is uh, earthquake source encryption. It has many purposes. One of them is to improve tsunami And I want to explain why, why not this relevant. We look at uh, at one of the regions that we have started already for many years. This is Australasia. Yeah. And we're specifically interested in locating and characterizing earthquakes in that smaller region that you see here, this is the Solomon Sea. Australasia is not a region that is particularly densely instrumented with high-quality broadband seismometers. The few that are available are shown here in the form of black triangles. And they have been used in order to constrain earthquake sources using relatively simple models of the Earth. So a model that has been used is shown, for example, here. These are shear velocities at 120 kilometers of the Earth beneath the Australian continent. A large region where lot velocities are anomalously high, and other regions where they're anomalously low. The Solomon Sea that we're interested in is here. And using this model, one <coughs> can try to constrain the locations and the mechanisms of earthquakes. And that is what you see here. So each of the, each of the small dots corresponds to the location to the epicenter of an earthquake, and all of the corresponding beach balls they show you the radiation pattern. Of those sources, of those earthquakes, I don't want to go very much into detail. Just very loosely speaking, tell you that the uh, the bright colors, the bright brown tones that you see here, they correspond to uh, to sources that you would typically expect, for example, from a volcanic explosion. Uh, they are more explosive, like they are volcano-like. Whereas the darker ones, they are what you would actually expect from a tectonic earthquake, so from slip on a fault you see that that we actually have a wide variety of them. Now, look at, let's look at a specific one, for example, the earthquake that we have down here. It occurred at a depth of 30 plus minus 25 kilometers, you see that depth is not very well constrained, and I will show you that that is actually a problem, um, and it, its this, this mechanism is a strange hybrid. So it's, it's sort of between a volcano and an earthquake, very loosely speaking, so it's, it looks a bit odd. But of course, we know that that model is not particularly good. And if we replace the model that we have here by an Earth model obtained by four waveform inversion, we can repeat this inversion exercise for the earthquake sources, and we obtain a mechanism that is shown here. So instead of being at 30 plus minus 25 kilometers, it's at 10 plus minus 7. So the uncertainties have reduced quite significantly. And at the same time, it's changed from this strange <coughs> volcano-earthquake earthquake hybrid to a proper tectonic earthquake that you'd expect in the region. So um, it does what it should do. Now why is that relevant? And, uh, and that I want to show you here. That's a, these are very, very simple simulations in 1D of the propagation of tsunami waves. So they, they don't require any supercomputing. They run on a single CPU, no matter how old your computers. Um, to the left, you will see a simulation for the earthquake at third depth and to derive right, the simulation for an earthquake attack. Uh, on the x-axis, this distance from the epicenter, distance from the location of the earthquake, in kilometers, so the epicenter will be here, and the coastline will be over there. And there on the y-axis, you see water level at the coast in meters. So we start with the, uh, the 30-kilometer earthquake. So the wave starts propagating has already very long wavelength at the beginning because the earthquake is deep. And the wave propagates towards the coast, and of course builds up as it hits the coast to a maximum height of about 30 meters, which is quite substantial. Now let's, let's stop this and look, let's look at the 10 kilometer version. It starts with the same height, but much shorter wavelength because it's uh, at shallower depth. It propagates to, uh, towards the coast. So the propagation speed of those tsunami waves is about 300 meters per second. So they're, they're not particularly fast compared to seismic waves. And then reaches a height of uh, about 10 meters. It's still, <coughs> 10. the absolute scaling doesn't, doesn't really matter because it obviously depends on the magnitude of the earthquake. But the bottom line here is that, Constraining an earthquake to be at 30 kilometer depth or at 10 kilometer depth it actually makes a difference. So, so it is not of purely academic interest. Uh, it can actually do something something good. So, so currently we have two projects uh, going in this direction. The first one is the one that has been going for almost a decade together with Australian National University and Geoscience Australia. And there the goal is to use those full waveform models in order to improve tsunami warnings in the region. And uh, well. It's almost operational, and in the, we're currently in the process of updating the Earth model that you, that you have seen in the slide. The second one is that we would like to get more uncertainty information on the earthquake location, on the timing of the earthquake, uh, and on the mechanism, and for this we're developing a fully probabilistic earthquake source inversion It still uses those uh, complex full waveform form inversion models. We exploit wave field reciprocity and do this. Uh, Basically, compute the full posterior using uh, a method that is called Hamiltonian Monte Carlo that needs only a very small number of samples in order to reach convergence. Our current test region are the Japanese islands, and there if you want to know more. Please have a look at the post of, uh, of Sawsimuto, who is uh, currently working to develop this for for the Japanese island region. And she has she has more details on this. The second topic that I would like to talk about, also because it's uh, Probably the computationally most expensive one that we have at the moment is to uh, to do ambient noise interferometry for the Earth, and part of that is to constrain or to learn about the sources of the Earth's ambient field. I want to show you what uh, what that is. So we you have seen those recordings at the very beginning already, the body waves, and the surface waves, but also there are interesting recordings prior to the first arrival, and uh, those recordings prior to the first arrival, when you zoom in, uh, they're typically referred to as noise, but it's actually a recording of the ambient seismic field of the Earth. So it's not noise, it's actually propagating waves instead. This noise of this ambient field is typically assumed or typically thought to be excited by ocean waves that interact with the, uh, with the rough ocean floor, the exert um, pressure fluctuations on the ocean floor. Those pressure fluctuations themselves excite seismic waves. And that is then what you recall all the time on your seismometers, even though they are no Now, this wave field itself uh, may not be very interesting, um, but we can actually try to figure out where, where its sources are. So that's one of our main interests, where and when are these waves actually excited? We know roughly it's the oceans, but they are large. The tool to do this is, uh, is seismic interferometry. So instead of looking at only one recording at, at one station, shown here one, we look at two it would be another one here in North America. the recordings are shown here. and instead of looking at them separately, we compute the correlation function of those recordings. So we literally evaluate this integral over those two wave fields recorded at two different positions. What this gives us is a deterministic signal, a deterministic correlation function that can also be considered as a a deterministic interference pattern of two quasi-random wave fields, or one quasi-random wave field recorded at two different locations. What we then do is we we analyze really floods of data. So we compute such interference patterns of the ambient field, in this case, for 10 years of data from about 130 seismometers that have been operational continuously for, for 10 years with a sampling of one sample per second. So that gives about 31 billion data points that we correlate with, the, with each other. So there's some supercomputing involved there. We then measure the amplitudes in those correlation functions or in those interferograms. And from those amplitudes, we can actually constrain the distribution of the ambient field sources that explain the measurements that we see, two within down uncertainties. And in, we correctly account for propagation in 3D complex This is what this looks like without going into detail. What you see uh, is the global distribution of power spectral density of those ambient field sources in the oceans. So the, one, uh, the, the light colors around white. They are strong sources and the darker ones are weak sources, averaged over all the summer months over ten years. This is June, July, August, averaged over ten years of death. You see that there are some regions, specifically in the uh, the southern hemisphere, where those noise sources are very strong, whereas the northern hemisphere is relatively weak. This makes this makes sense because in winter most of the strong and in summer most of the strong storms are in the southern hemisphere because so it's southern hemisphere winter, whereas uh, in the northern hemisphere, as you see today, the weather is nice and calm. Now this can be repeated for for winter. So these are the ambient field sources in winter, and what you see immediately is that most of those sources move from the southern hemisphere, where they're located in the winter, towards the northern hemisphere. Northern hemisphere winter, we have very strong storms, and they excite very, a very strong ambient heat So this, this first of all, poses lots of questions. So we are able to to do it computationally physically, but uh, what we so far don't know is the actual physical origin of those highly localized sources. So, so when we look at predictions that come from physical models, they don't agree particularly well. So the actual nature, the physical nature of those sources is, uh, is is very much unclear. The relation to bathymetry climate and extreme weather is something we don't know at the moment, and also we don't know the relation to very low magnitude background seismicity that may basically um, disguise itself as uh, as ambient field, even though it's deterministic events. And in addition to those questions, it also gives uh, lots of new opportunities. The first one is it really allows us to, to make a link between, between us, between the solid earth sciences, and the ocean and atmospheric sciences. Because we are suddenly looking at the joint So this power spectral density on the ocean floor that excites this ambient field is something that oceanographers can constrain and something that we can constrain. So this is something that, that before we did but also, as you can imagine, knowing the sources of a wave field allows us to use that wave field for imaging. And, uh, that is particularly interesting, for example, to, to image and to monitor reservoirs. Those ambient field sources, they are present all the time. So we don't have to wait for them as for earthquakes or explosions. So one can, one can image, one has much denser coverage. And uh, currently, we're trying to implement this for an oil and gas field in the North Sea. It's called the field. Um, At the moment, we can show theoretically that Good. Um, A few words about where our actual computational expense is sitting. I mentioned already, it's plainly wave field propagation through 3D complex and the tool that we use for this is a uh, spectral element discretization of the seismic wave equation that accounts for uh, the elasticity of the Earth and sotropy attenuation, uh, but also for the, the irregular shape of our planet. So, why is that? Uh, why is that interesting? Again, uh, developing tools that actually allow us to propagate wave propagation through complicated domains is basically what allows us to make this, this jump between applications for the Earth or, say, medical metal imaging and non structured testing. So you've already seen that uh, we can simulate wave propagation through the Earth saw, on a global scale. So that is roughly 10 million meter scale. But what we can, of course, do, we can simply rescale the wave equation. It's a linear equation. So dividing all lengths and times by a factor of 10 to the power of 8, and then we have length scales of about 10 centimeters. So this is the scale that's interesting for medical tomography, but also for non-destructive testing, where you're interested in modeling wave fields through such small machine points that you see here. Of course, the beauty of it is that even though you scale by a pretty large factor, the math and physics are basically unchanged. They change a little bit. but that's, that's manageable. Now of course, this has been known for a very long time, that that scaling exists, this linear equation. It's kind of trivial. But still, um, <coughs> there has so far basically been no no tool that actually allows us to, uh, to operate really across the scales that we ide- ideally have, so those 11 orders of magnitude, and uh, still is able to capture all the complexities that we have. So we are not only interested in modeling a wave field through something that is spherical, but it should also be a machine part of something that is even more complicated. And so far, there has basically no been no tool that allows us to do this on a high-performance computer. So this motivated us to develop uh, a code that we call that we call SALOS. It's a spectral element solver of the wave equation, or in fact, different wave equations: acoustic, elastic, the complex uh, rheologies. And it works in two dimensions and three dimensions for solids, fluids, and when both are coupled, which is what you typically have in the Earth. Uh, it's fully viscoelastic and anisotropic, it can use hexahedral and tetrahedral meshes, and it operates in scales on anything from, from a laptop to uh, uh, the largest machine that, uh, that we can access at the Swiss Just a few things that are, that are relevant from the Earth science perspective. This is a snapshot of wave propagation through a reservoir model. You see, it has the regular topography, and using such a spectral element method, and that's one of the purpose of the spectral element method. You can actually, um, uh, it's not really Visible here, um, you can actually design a mesh that that follows this topography. So every single element is aligned. Such that the element boundaries coincide with the boundary between the fluid region that you have here and the solid region that you have here. Now, this is natural as something that one can compute, but my, my point is a different one. My point is actually this slide. So, this slide uses not the, spectra, not the spectral element mesh that one would usually use with a nicely deformed mesh that follows the discontinuity, but it's a, it's a mesh that, <coughs> that you would typically use in a finite difference method. In the finite difference method, you would say, oh, I approximate the topography that I have here by, by small staircases. And uh, since those steps are very small compared to the wavelength of the, of the topography, we'd hope that that is a relatively good approximation. But one can actually see very clearly that this is not at all the case. And so it makes a very significant difference to actually build a mesh. That honors the topography of this interface between fluid and solid. And so something this vector element method allows you to do relatively easily. This can be driven even further. So this is uh, fluid-solid coupling, more extreme, just to show what, uh, what the code is in principle able to do. This is not a fluid ocean and a solid and a solid earth. This is a <coughs> model where domains are alter- alternating solid and fluid. They have the right boundary condition between them. So if, if you will, this is um, brute force poor elastic model without any effective equations. You see a wave field starting in a solid region and then propagating in those, into those alternating domains. So if you want to know more about the development of this of this code and see, see some applications. Uh, Again, there are two posters, one by Mike Akanasia, he, he can't be here, but his poster is here, yeah. on the general development of this code and some features that, that it currently has. And then, certainly, he has a poster showing uh, applications that use measures, spectral element measures, that don't only conform to the geometry of the domain, but also to the anticipated geometry of the seismic wave field. And, uh, and doing so helps you to save really tremendous. Computational resources. Good. Future directions. Um, as I said, um, much of the group is, uh, is based or evolved out of four-way formers version, intended to constrain the three-dimensional structure of, of our planet. Or this uh, this domain, seismic tomography, more generally, has been around for about 14 decades, but. Even though Thought has made some progress and undeniable progress, there's some some very significant bottlenecks that, that we currently face. So the first one is uh, is, is more in the is more in the community. It's more the the mode of operation that we have. We are, we operate, operate in a very very atomic fashion. Basically what we do is we we all function our own. Everybody has a certain chunk of data and use that little chunk of data in order to build a model of the Earth. Uh, I'm pretty sure that only seismologists do this, this is um, like a, a, a very individual. Yeah, I think it's really within the culture of the geosciences, I would almost say. So we all build our little models from the little chunk of data that we can handle. And, uh, and that limits the, uh, the amount of data that can in principle be exploited. And So uh, this is because the time that the PhD students who, who do all the work, is limited. It's three, four, five years, and, uh, and the data that can't be handled within the time are not getting into that model. Um, but also, it's usually restricted to the methods that a specific group can actually master. Logically, you have a, you have a certain bandwidth, and you you can't very easily get beyond that. So at the moment, even though I think those problems are realised, we don't really have a technology to, to get around this and to and to be more, uh, more collaborative the, uh, the other bottleneck that we have is that we tend to ignore prior knowledge so this is especially for, for seismic tomography it's, it's very typical instead of somehow trying to build on all the uh, the knowledge that we accumulated over the past forty years, we all the time start from scratch it means from Earth models that are very simple either one dimensional or have very simple three dimensional structure. So typically starting from scratch and that means prior knowledge is, is ignored. That is that is sort of anti-scientific because science is very much using prior knowledge and uh, <coughs> adding some new data and getting to a new posterior. That's not something we really tend to do. And uh, and that really slows that progress. So this the effect of this, of those, of those is shown here. These are 12 images of the same object, the Earth. So, what you see <coughs> is shear velocity, velocity variations at depth from 35 to about 700 kilometers. So, when you look at, uh, at a certain depth level, so like this one, they should all be the same, ideally. It's clear that they are not. So, if you zoom in, for example, those three Earth models of shear velocity variations at two hundred fifty kilometres depth—they're not very similar. So, so we actually really have a problem. They don't vary in details, and it, we, we are not at the point where we're talking about details. So images like this and the bottlenecks that uh, that I have shown before are basically the motivation behind what we call the collaborative seismic Earth. It is a it is a proposition of how to get around it potentially in the future uh, but may not be the only solution. So the idea is to, to really overcome the bottlenecks that I have shown before and to, communi- to, to enable some sort of community interaction that allows us to use more of the data that we have scattered through the community and use more of the data than say a single PhD student can use. But also to use the prior knowledge that we step by step accumulate. The uh, the technology really, uh, in a nutshell, consists of building not one Earth model at a certain time, and then say, that's, that's finished, but to build a model of the Earth that evolves on basically all the scales that we can seismically access. So that will happen or is happening through successive regional refinements. For example, when a new piece of data becomes available, and in the end, this is intended to be some sort of community-driven divide and common. Currently, we have, uh, we have Generation 1 of this model. It's, it's really at the stage of a proof of concept. So it's by far not something that is really routinely operational. We have a technology, the proof of concept, so we think it is, it is something that we may actually work in the future. What you see here is a, is a summary of the data that currently, or so far, went into the model. All the uh, all the stars that you see, the red stars, they are earthquakes, so sources that provide the data for that model, and all the green triangles, they are seismic stations, seismometers. You see that extremely heterogeneously distributed. All of those sources and receivers, they are connected by by ray paths, only symbolically, and the coloring of those ray paths indicates the minimum period of the waves that were used to constrain 3D Earth structure. For example, there's a background data set that spans the whole globe globe, at a minimum minimum period of about 55 seconds. This is what you see, for example, here, covering much of the Pacific. But then there are other regions. So the colors get actually flipped. So this should be the other way around. So the, the light colors correspond to periods that are relatively long, and the dark colors to periods that are relatively short. You see that in some parts of uh, of Europe, the, uh, the minimum period of the data that we were able to use is about 5 seconds. And of course with 5 seconds you can constrain more detail than with 55 seconds. As I said, there a proof of concept that produces what we call a generation 1 model. And, and there you immediately see that the extreme heterogeneity in coverage translates into heterogeneity in, in resolution. We have some regions velocity at 15 kilometer depth that are basically empty because there's, there's hardly any data going in there. <coughs> but also other regions, like uh, much of uh, southern Europe, where you have detail probably in that, in that movement you, you can't see with the naked eye. So roughly resolution varies from about 1,000 kilometers in the Pacific to about 10 kilometers in, uh, in parts of the Iberian Peninsula and in parts of Anatolia. Going a little bit deeper, we see that uh, still we have this heterogeneity in coverage, a lot of detail within central and, and southern Europe. Other parts like Africa are still very much empty. This is Japan, uh, Australasia and then you will see North America coming in. So, um, also here, if you want to know more details about this, please have a look at the post about Philip van Halle. He's working on a specific aspect of that model, which is actually not community driven. So, so, the, the very long term idea is to actually get that collaborative seismic earth model to a stage where it evolves by itself, where instead of always requiring human interaction that is connected to a data center and in seismology we have many data centers with very large quantities of data and whenever a new piece of data becomes available the, uh, the Earth model as a computational construction retrieves those data checks if they can already be explained with the model that we currently have and if that's not the case it uses those data in order to update the current model but then you can imagine that this is intended to go. So it should really then uh, more or less evolve on its own. We, we know exactly that some human interaction will always be required, but, uh, but that's roughly the idea where we want to go. At the moment, this is, uh, as Philip uh, will show, not yet working for the whole globe, uh, but it's working for, almost working for a part of the globe, namely for, uh, for the African continent, which is also, from a seismological perspective, very interesting because it's uh, very, very unexplored. Good. Uh, that is all I have. Thanks for your attention.